Yeah, so we were in chapel one time at Southwestern, um, and we had a guest speaker, and he all he, he did a song, like he did a singing thing, like he, he likes to sing, whatever. So he does a song called Nobody Does Me Like Jesus mm-hmm. is the name of this song is that it? he sang. And he's Probably doing this true. performance up on stage. He's doing the whole thing, and he starts dancing. He starts doing this, like, pelvic thrust thing while he's, no. like, singing. No. Nobody does me like Jesus. And Do you think he knew what he was doing? I don't think he did. Oh, That's too bad. Uh, but we all thought it was the funniest thing on earth. Uh, it's pretty good. And yeah. so, yeah. Uh, good old... Good old chapel. Well, hey, hello again, and welcome again to the Good Trash Donor Cast, where we gather in a table and we talk about penises in church. Or we talk about the films that you'll never discuss in a film studies course. Except it's January, which uh, our frequent listeners will know means it's anti-trash month, where we talk about the movies you'll definitely discuss in a film studies course. Uh, and, and it is anti-trash. It's always a fun time of year where we uh, we put the movies on the table that are going to come up in a film studies course. And, I think so. Uh, this month is going to be even more fun because we're doing something a little different, and we're going to go west. Wild West. Wicked Wild Wild. And we're, gonna, Desperado. Yeah, we're watching the film, actually, that I watched when we did the Western as a genre in Intro to Film. Yep. Yep. And so uh, we're looking at John Ford's Stagecoach starring a new up-and-coming whippersnapper who might make some waves named John Wayne. Yep. Mm, unfortunately. So anyway, we're going to talk about that movie today. Yeah, we're going to complicate some masculinity, baby. It's going to be a thing that's going to happen. Let's go ahead and identify the disembodied voices speaking directly to your brain stems. Who are you, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and be a proud, glorified dreg, like me. There you go. Um, to, who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon, and fun fact, you can't break out of prison and into society in the same week. That's true. Uh, my name's Dustin Sells, and I didn't find a quote. Um, There's so many good quotes in this movie. Are you were trying good... very hard. No, I wasn't. Got to take notes during the movie, bud. Yeah, blah. Uh, so... <laughs> or just look it up on IMDb after the fact. Yeah, also true. Also a possibility, but I ran out of time. So, yeah, we are talking about John Ford's Stagecoach. Now, in case you're tuning in for the very first time, we're going to be spoiling this film from 1939. Um I don't really feel bad about that at all. But we will avoid it for the first third of the show. We'll do this. So we'll have a review that's generally spoiler-free. We'll play some games that might involve the mildest of spoilers of this film and other films in its orbit. And then we get down to business. And once that happens, then all spoiler bets are off. And we will find out whether or not um, John Wayne's Ringo Kid and uh, Dallas are able to escape. Coach that stage. What? I don't know. Uh, Spare the spoiler and lighten the watcher. I was doing that thing where you make up what the movie's about. Oh, and, uh, this is a movie where they try to coach a stage. They try to coach a stage. Um, well, you know, it's it's you're it's, gonna stand there and you're gonna be sturdy. Judy Garland <laughs> and Mickey Rooney together decide to put on a musical. It's a prequel to a Star's Born, and they're gonna stage a coach, um, in which they're gonna do uh, coach a the fashion TV show. show. Man, this is a real dumb word association game we're playing. <laughs> I like it. Oh golly. So, um, anyway, that's what's going to happen uh, there for that their show. But we'll have before any of that begins a synopsis from the Voice of the Cinema, and it is now time for that to take place, Mister. Arthur Gordon voice of that there cinema. Let's hear that synopsis, please. A group of people traveling on a stagecoach find their journey complicated by the threat of Geronimo and learn something about each other in the process. Oh, it's like a, it's like a, it's like an episode of um every um you know ninety uh, sitcoms ninety sitcoms. It's yeah. like Fresh Prince of Bel Air, right? It is it's yeah. exactly the like real the stage Fresh Prince the real stagecoach were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> it's family matters, and uh, Laura learns that she's really in love with Steve, not Stefan. So, um, so before we really dive into this, I, I'm just curious, what is each of our experience with the Western genre? We're going to be in this genre for the next month, experiencing different areas, different countries, uh, in, in interpretations of the Western. So I'm That's just kind right. of curious. 
where we're all landing with this. I grew up with these things. I mean, I had an uncle who was my dad's brother who had a framed photograph of John Wayne in his house. Um, I sat on my grandfather's knee and watched many, many a Saturday afternoon matinee western. I didn't watch much gun smoke as far as like that sort of television glut of westerns, but um, I saw all I saw all of them. You know, saw all the Clint Eastwood movies, saw all the John Wayne movies um, as a kid, and so I'm I'm very familiar with that part of it. Um, and then as the revisionist western thing was happening uh, very strongly in the 1990s, um, as I was coming of age, I was watching those as well. And so um, I feel I feel fairly well versed in western. I've seen lots of them, and it's a, it's a genre that I like a lot, I have, and I really haven't thought about it in this sort of theoretical space, so I'm kind of excited to do that. So what about you, Dalton? What's your experience? Well, uh, fairly similar. Um, my granddad's a, a big uh, Clint Eastwood and John Wayne fan, as most granddads in Oklahoma are. Uh, I found uh, them boring uh, because they weren't violent enough, and then I got to experience some of those 90s and 70s revisionist westerns, which are full of blood and... Uh, morally complicated characters and that was really what pulled me in around 12 to 14 was when i really got into westerns and uh i kind of go back and forth and pick them up every few years uh, uh 2010 when the first red dead redemption came out i went through a big uh western spurt uh just kind of enjoying living in the genre and uh that's kind of gonna be what this is i'm almost 10 years out and uh, we've got uh, red dead redemption 2 out and i've been playing that pretty much non-stop for the last two months and uh, i'm gonna spend two months watching western so it's a genre i really like but I put on the back burner uh, just because I've seen a lot of them. But, uh, yeah, I, I grew up with them as well, especially the uh, Clint Eastwood revisionist ones like Outlaw Josie Wales, High Plains Drifter, Pale Rider. Love those weird westerns. Uh, Dead Man, uh, mm-hmm. the Jim Jarmusch film. That was that was the space I liked to play in when I first got introduced to them was revisionist and weird westerns. All righty. What about you, Arthur? Yeah, I mean, similar idea. My dad loved westerns. You know, he wanted cable so he could have the westerns channel. <laughs> you know, that was his big thing. And so, I, I mean, I grew up watching all the John Wayne stuff, True Grit, uh, Donovan's Reef, um, McClintock, mm-hmm. and all those. Did you enjoy them right away? Uh, I mean, growing up, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, that was mainly what we watched in the house. Gotcha. So, I, mean, I, I, I did enjoy John Wayne. I, I enjoyed McClintock quite a bit. I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, I enjoyed Donovan's Reef. I enjoyed, um, you know, the other stuff. Uh, you know, we watched a lot of Gene Autry, a lot of Roy Rogers growing up, a lot of Gunsmoke and the Rifleman, a lot of James Garner. Uh, you know, I love mm-hmm. Support Your Local Sheriff and Support Your Local Gunfighter, which I thought were just hilarious. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely something I, I uh, was, you know, very – uh, and dude in uh, growing up because of my dad and then mm-hmm. you know I, I never really he didn't watch any of the Clint Eastwood stuff he didn't watch that the Spaghetti Westerns he didn't watch the revision stuff so I never really got into that uh, and then in somewhere I guess in high school uh, somebody loaned me a copy of Tombstone mm. uh, yeah, uh, and I fell in love with Tombstone I, mean, yeah. I watched it probably daily for for a good period of time i i, I just love tombstone tombstone quick and the dead and um oh god what's it? there's another 90s one i'm forgetting but those were the ones that i when i was around nine to 12 those were the ones that i was like okay young guns? I, I see what's going on here you no, young guns kid? no i didn't watch young guns until Silverado, I was probably maybe? 16 um I can't remember. It's not important. Lonesome Dove was the other big one for me. Oh, we yeah. loved Lonesome Dove. My dad loved it, and I, I still love it. I think it's just a great epic. You know, it was a miniseries. What you know, so it was a little more long form, but it's a really good story. Um, and so it's definitely something I grew up around. Uh, and, and to this day, you know, I still you know, Appaloosa came out, so I went and saw that. You know, and then Slow West. I was a big fan of Slow West. <sighs> love Slow so, West. You know, I, I still appreciate the genre. It's not one like Dalton said. I don't live in uh, quite as often, but I, I do appreciate a, a, a western when it comes out. 
All righty, all right. Well, there you go. That's where we're coming from regarding the genre. Let's talk about where we're coming from with our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews of 1939's Stagecoach. Not the first Western, not the beginning of the cycle of Westerns, but it is the first appearance of one, or rather the starring role of one, John Wayne. So I go to you first. Dalton, what say you? Uh, thumbs-up, thumbs-down review of Stagecoach. Well, I'm still reeling from our discussion of the Avengers Infinity War. Uh, I don't know what's good. I don't know what's bad. Dustin just broke me. I I don't trust my taste anymore. Dustin snapped his fingers and Dalton turned to dust mentally. I I did a really he, yeah, he crushed me and I was unable to argue against him. So now I don't know anything. Uh I will say this, I think uh superhero films and westerns are irrevocably tied to one another. I think the superhero film has replaced the western as the action movie um the the height of Hollywood action filmmaking, much like the Western was in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I think that we're kind of in a cycle like that with uh, superhero films. And I always, that's just the way I think about these two genres. I think about them tied together because they're both genres that rely on archetypes. They don't really, they, when they build characters, they're usually building out a mythic character. Um, and, and so with that said, I really enjoy Stagecoach for some of the same reasons I really enjoy uh, the Avengers. I, I like the idea of using a stock character to interrogate our heroes and our legends and our myths. And I think uh, John Ford would get there uh, when he gets to Stagecoach in the 50s, or um, the Searchers in the 50s. I think Stagecoach is not really interrogating those myths so much as it is just kind of looking at them and looking at the archetypes that we have of the West and seeing how when you put all of these different characters in a blender together, uh, you see what, what you get. The idea of John Wayne as a young, fresh-faced ingenue is really kind of incredible in Stagecoach because he is this figure in American pop culture. Uh, you either love him or hate him, but he is a huge figure in American pop culture, and it's it's so interesting to go back and see the start of that. Uh, and we've talked about off-air, but that, that first opening shot of his introduction where this pan in, this larger-than-life... I mean, you see why John Ford wanted him. He's a big, tall dude who looks great on camera. And he, you know, cocks the rifle with one hand and is looking all cool in his double-breasted jacket. And, yeah, he, you see why he became a movie star. But this is, I think, one of the most interesting John Wayne performances we get until we get to Searchers and um, True Grit. I think it's it's one of his most interesting performances because he's not a guy who knows everything. He's playing a character who is questioning his role in life, and he's he's not a moral authority. I mean, he starts playing the you know Rooster Cogburn uh, is an old drunk cuss, but he's uh, always doing the right thing. The Ringo Kid is an outlaw. He's out for vengeance, um, but he also has sympathy for. Uh, uh, sex workers and uh, does not take kindly to people judging other people. And it's very interesting that a man who would become known for judging other people's lifestyles uh, and judging other people's uh, morality is playing in the 30s this guy who is really kind of the most open-hearted character in the entire film. And it is so interesting to see him playing against what his type is, honestly. Um, and I think that's why it's fun to go back and look at you know, screen icons' careers, go look at the characters that started their careers, and you can kind of see different... I mean, it's like uh, if you go re revisit early Ryan Gosling work, he's doing way different characters than he is now, uh, or Harrison Ford, for that matter. Uh, just watching the arc of a career is one of the most fun things about doing film analysis, and I think... Uh, both watching John Wayne early in his career and watching John Ford early in his career are, are really some of the strengths of this film. So 
it's got its problems uh, thematically and philosophically, and we'll get there. But in terms of just being a damn good Western with some crazy horse stunts and some good characters, yeah, I like it. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dolenser. What do you say, Mr. Arthur Gordon? I, I, I was definitely into it. I, I, I really did enjoy it quite a bit. This is the first time I watched it all the way through. I'd seen, I'd started watching it, man. I, I guess it was probably when I first got Hulu when the Criterion was on there. And I tried to watch it then. I just couldn't get into it for some reason. Uh, but this this revisit, I, I really fell for it. I, I, I think it's got a great cast of characters. The assembling of these archetypes put together, their banter back and forth, and the way that uh, Ford allows them to play, I think, really works well. Uh, John Wayne, yeah, he's got that charisma. He's got that presence, and he really works. You know, um, he'd been working for about 10 years up to this point, uh, and, and Ford finally pulled the trigger and got him that starring role. And it, it, I think it was a great decision here. Um, and, and Ford himself, you know, I, I, I haven't had a lot of experience with Ford. Uh, he's definitely a name I know. Uh, and uh, he he has a mastery of the basics of film grammar mm-hmm. and utilizes them so well uh like that the 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 close-up that that dolly track in on john wayne and that hero shot is is incredible yeah. and it's so jarring because up into the, you know he's doing a lot of uh you know st- static shots or close-ups and then all of a sudden we got that jarring break to zoom in on the ringo kid mm-hmm. and it's gorgeous and it's so well done and, and just through the film the way he places the camera where he places the camera the use of the close-ups the use of the mise-en-scene uh to help tell the story of these characters and what's going on uh and and using the sets to kind of add to the the, the thematic uh threads of what's going on in the situation that they're in and, and how harrowing it kind of is for them there's a an incredible camera usage uh, i don't know if you guys uh, felt as strongly about it as I did, but uh, when they float the stagecoach, yeah. they put the camera on top of the stagecoach, and I was shocked. I did yep. not expect that camera moving a night to movie from the 30s. It blew me away to see it that early. Yeah, the, the set pieces, the stunts, like you mentioned, oh, they're incredible. Stunt work is amazing. Yeah. Uh, John Wayne's stunt double is incredible, and, and I was reading, you know, he does the stunt where he uh, he's one of the Native Americans, and he gets shot, and he falls under the, the stagecoach, right? So dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, it, it's like Mad Max for Fury Road yeah. dangerous. Uh, and, and he was saying that, I guess, uh, you know, the, the horses had to go at a certain speed so they'd stay straight and not trample him. And he had to tuck in so that the wagon wouldn't grab his arm. <sighs> and I guess once they shot it, you know, he went to Ford and said, you know, how was it? And Ford's like, we wouldn't do that again either way. Like, no matter what. I'm I, not going to make yeah. you do that again. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? That's a good director who's not yeah. going to put his stuntmen in mortal peril more times yeah. than he has to. Uh, I mean, that was a life or death stunt. And they yeah. they pulled it off successfully. And it looks great. And and even Ford in the River, that, that sequence is incredible to see. And, yeah. like, I mean, it's not... It's it's real. They, they ford that river. And it works well. And, yeah, they do some, like some real uh, camera placement stuff that you just don't expect from a, a film this old when film yeah. cameras were gigantic. Yeah. I mean, you expect uh, shots on top of and inside of modes of transit these days, but again, seeing it in a film this old, it really shocked me, honestly. This is, an, what, an 80-year-old film almost? Something like that. And to see them... You, look, if you know how big cameras in the 30s were, the idea of putting one on top of a stagecoach is just... Nuts. It's insane. John yeah. Ford is a madman in this movie. He's just doing all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah, uh, so I, I have a great appreciation now for this movie and for what Ford's doing. I'd really like to check out some more Ford's work uh, and, and kind of study it from that approach. Um, and so, yeah, I'd 
definitely thumbs up on this one. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I'm also a fan of Stagecoach. It's racist now, I will say that. And so there is a problem with it, and we'll talk more about that when we get down to analysis. Um, I do think it does something a little bit better than the Avengers, since you've already mentioned it, Dalton, insofar as uh, we do have our sort of corporate banker, uh, wealthy, wealthy sort of millionaire, not made as to be, you know, the hero, um, which, you know, the hero of um, the Avengers is basically charismatic Donald Trump. Um I don't know. Is he really a hero because he creates a sentient AI that almost kills the Earth? Well, I mean, basically every bad guy they fight is Tony Stark's fault. Well, so, he, well, he does. Some, he has some flaws, but he's going to overcome them and save us all. No, he's going to damn us all multiple times, which is the fascist dream. But nonetheless, um, I think you're not interrogating the character enough. Oh yeah, I don't think. Okay, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but this guy gets arrested, which is good. Um, and I like that. And there is this sort of, you know, real kind of... Yeah, that doesn't uh, happen in real life. Liberation is sort of moving. Captain America gets arrested in real life. Well, true facts. Um, there, there is something going on that is, you know, the treatment of Dallas as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way in which, you know, you almost expect the sort of D.W. Griffith rehabilitation of the southern gunfighter. And it doesn't happen. He no. still is a bad guy. He dies a coward. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, it is. And uh, so, I mean, so thematically, there's some interesting things going on there. We've already talked about... But the musical cues, I mean, this, this use of, again, sort of American revivalist hymnody here and there throughout the film. We were talking about it before uh, we started the show proper. Uh, it's really, really well done. The stunts, as we've already discussed, are amazing. The camera movements are great. There's another moment that I really liked where there's a swish pan from the uh, the stagecoach running in the bottom of Monument Valley to the top of a bluff where the uh, the Native Americans are standing. Yeah, really and great. It, and it goes back and forth a time or two there. Uh, just great stuff. I mean, really, really inventive kind of things. The way in which he's able to capture that black and white photography. In 1939, you couldn't get clouds. You couldn't get landscape with detail. And Ford figured out how to put a red filter on the front of a black and white camera so that you got greater contrast and were able to capture some of those kinds of things. I mean, he just he knows what he's doing with the grammar of film, but he also knows what he's doing with the filming of landscape. This is film that is wide and big and expansive. And there, there's a way in which he's able to do that, but he's also able to tell the story that's very, very narrowed down. That really the action of the movie does not happen until the last 25 minutes or so. And the rest of the movie is just us getting to know these characters and get us getting, uh, getting again, into this sort of standard, you know, 30s kind of film speak kind of way. And it's a little shallow, sure. But getting to know these characters over a course of a little over an hour to say, okay, this is who our players are. And now we're going to let it all come loose. That's really, really interesting to me. And uh, makes for a really enjoyable cinematic experience. Again, uh, racism and other issues notwithstanding, and we'll certainly talk more about them when we get down to analysis. But um, that being said, it is, and to to a large extent, a pretty accurate depiction of the West in that extent as well. So that's not all bad uh, for that to have taken place. So, uh, yeah, I like it a lot as well. So our biases, dear listener, are generally pro. We, we clearly like Westerns and this is one of them that we like. And so we're going to expect a lot of this, I hope over the course of, uh, this particular double marathon. I'm not going to call it a long two month marathon. It's like a, it's like two month marathons of similar ilk, right? It's, uh, Juxtaposed marathon, uh, uh, yeah, a horse of a slightly different color marathon um, to to mix our cowboy things. A megathon, if you will, and another 1939 film. Um, I'm just really happy Dalton laid the seeds of us doing Jonah Hex at the end of February. Yes. <laughs> When the superhero and the Western unite. Oh, boy. Oh, man. We'll talk about that. I don't know if I want to do that. 
Yeah, I need to pray about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, ha- we'll have to have a production meeting uh, in that regard. Now it's time to play the game. Good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game. She's got game. Who this week's game, game is our favorite genre watershed moments. That's right. Favorite watershed genre moments brought to you by Stagecoach. Stagecoach. It's the one that made Westons good, and we're going to talk about the ones that made other genres good. Uh, we're going to talk about the films that did similar things to Stagecoach. They either codified the genre or reinvented the genre. Uh, or started it. Fi- or started it. Films that were big for a particular genre. So uh, there you go. Uh, that is the game. I'm going to go to you first. Arthur, what is your number first pick? Uh, my first one's a, t- uh, it's a like, tie. I don't, I don't know. They, I think they go hand in hand, though. Um, and it is X-Men 2 and Spider-Man 2. Uh, you know, we've talked earlier, in, or last year now, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Time is not a construct. It doesn't make sense. Uh, when we did our Spider-Man trilogy doubleheader, uh, we talked about how, you know, X-Men, Blade, and Spider-Man kind of really laid the groundwork for the uh, current uh, superhero cycle. Um, but I, I really feel that it was X-Men 2 and Spider-Man 2 uh, that really helped to raise the stakes and solidify the emotional uh power that these films could really have uh, and connecting with an audience and, and connecting these characters to something more than just a campy, you know, action movie. I, I think they really did work to elevate uh, with this kind of character drama and questioning these different, you know, themes and ideas of personhood and identity and, and the struggles that, you know, kind of these characters are dealing with and really help to elevate that to something more than we had really seen before. Absolutely, absolutely. I like that pick a lot. What is your number first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, my number first pick was actually Spider-Man 2, so I'm going to call an audible and stay in the superhero genre, uh, and I'm going to say Logan and Infinity War, a little tie, because I think they are the two, as of right now, I think they are the two logical conclusions of this movement, right? You've got Logan, which is a super stripped-down deconstruction of the superhero genre, right? It takes out all the interconnected world stuff and is just about a couple of characters and what it means to be a hero especially if you're a hero whose power is knife hands uh and the the violence implied by knife hands that's usually happening off screen and what happens when you put that violence on screen and you well draw the logical conclusions between the superhero genre and the western genre and you interrogate uh these narratives of power and violence and i think infinity war is the exact opposite where you just go whole hat in on the interconnected universe and you strip out all of the deeper thinking about the nature of violence on screen and you think more about uh, myths and uh, archetypes. Uh, so I think those are two big watershed moments of, of 2017 and 2018 in the superhero genre. I am sure we will get more over the coming decade. Uh, hopefully uh, they're more along the lines of uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and Logan and Look, I got to be honest, maybe they're less like Infinity War as much as I do like it. Um, I, I think it is still kind of bloated and uh, a mess to unpack. But uh, I think it's a big moment, as is Logan. All righty. Well, thank you. I like that pick very much. I'm going further back in time for my first moment. Um, and I'm going to 1958 and Forbidden Planet, Yeah, uh, which is not the first science fiction film, and it's not the first space film. There's a... Sp- 
spate of 50s sci-fi films, and overwhelmingly they are focused on the fear of nuclear war and uh, what's going on with that kind of stuff. And, of course, that, that continues. The Cuban Missile Crisis is still years away at this point, so those uh, anxieties do not uh, get relieved at, any, uh, at that point. But what happens in 1958 is this uh, science fiction space film shot in Technicolor with this uh, very, very sort of electronic soundtrack wrestling with these sort of Freudian themes, which sort of begins to lay the groundwork for the science fiction type of what we would later know, you know, which was really codified in the, the television series Star Trek. Yeah. This idea of this really kind of interesting theme. It's, it's told in a 90-minute format rather than in a half-hour or an hour format. But it is that idea of we're going to wrestle with this sort of idea of the id unleashed and what that sort of Freudian psychology would look like in a sci-fi environment. And then we're going to really do a lot of stuff with set design and design the future in that really, really cool kind of 60s way that we see more and more of throughout the 1960s and on into the 1970s. And so for me, I think Forbidden Planet, uh, Robbie the Robot, and all of that is one of the real big watershed moments in science fiction cinema. And so that would be my first selection uh, for that. So moving on to number next, what do you say, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Uh, again, I'm sorry for these kind of double <laughs> whammies. Uh, but um, I love it. We're going to go back to 1960, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're going to look at two different countries that almost put out the same type of movie, and that is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Michael Powell's uh, Peeping Tom. Sure. Well, they're uh, both British, British directors, yeah, too. So he's working in America. He's American by that point. Yeah, I was going to say, Alfred Hitchcock's British the way Christopher Nolan's British. I'll yeah. be fair. Um, uh, but these are two movies, and, and it still blows my mind that they came in you know, just a few months apart because they are perfect pairs uh, of, a, of a whole. Um, but they really lay that groundwork in, in the horror genre uh, of the slasher film, and what we would you know plant the seeds for what we would know to be the slasher itself, I think, and 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 the way they kind of work together to interrogate uh, the 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 protagonist of a story and who we follow and the point of view and putting us into that point of view and, and experimenting with those different ideas and and they're both fascinating films uh, whose impacts have just echoed uh, for the last you know five almost six decades now uh, within a subgenre of horror, uh, laying the groundwork establishing some of those tropes uh, and and helping to form and codify that that subgenre of the, of the slasher film and they both hold up extremely well uh you know they both work still i, I think they've stood the test of time uh and they're a perfect storm of of two movies uh really tackling the same type of film uh from different angles and and it really works really well and and i think that's you know a couple you have to go back to Absolutely. I like that pick a lot, Arthur. What is your number next pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, this is going to be my number last pick, but let's go ahead and stay in the horror space and talk about William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Yep, that's a uh, game changer. Yeah, big time. Uh, it does a lot for the horror genre, right? It not only codifies and solidifies the place of horror as a high art, I think, but also solidifies the bankability of horror. Horror is not just a niche genre. I mean, again, Psycho is a pretty big hit. I mean, let's not underplay that by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I, I think there is something about, especially when you go back to the watch the '70s newsreels that are uh, about the premiere of The Exorcist. It was a cultural phenomenon. It was the only movie, as far as the world was concerned, in December of 1973. Uh, and again, this would be continued in things like The Shining, and would be continued in today with things like Hereditary. And uh, oh God, what was another art horror movie that came out this year? Mandy. Oh, that's fair. Mandy. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of Mandy, but yeah, let's go with that. But 
it starts to blur the lines. I think it's the movie that starts the fucking dumb think piece fight we have to have every time there's a horror movie that's kind of artsy come out. Is it a horror? Yes. Postmodern horror. Yeah. The answer is it is a horror movie. Don't try to church it up. Yeah. It's a spooper. Top to bottom, you've got this insane cast. You've got these amazing performances. This just absolute formal mastery of what can be done in a horror film. And you've also got these really heady, psychological, philosophical, theological conversations about the things that go bump in the night. And I think when you firmly make a movie about uh, fear of the devil in a uh, country that was uh, founded by Puritans, I think you really strike uh, a very raw nerve in the uh, the, the psychic unconscious of, uh, of the popular culture in a really cool way. I don't mean to get all you know shitty and... Uh, uh, pretentious about it, but I I think that's what it does. I mean, there's no other language I have to describe what that movie did because it was that big of a deal. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to keep it horror as well, Dalton. Yeah, baby. And so I'm going to go to the original moment, the founding of the American horror genre, which is 1931's Frankenstein. This is what begins it. Uh, well, I, I say Frankenstein. I was say Freaks is earlier, Frank right? Is, well, Freaks is, is earlier from Browning, and then we've got Dracula in 1931 as well, which is in February, and Frankenstein gets released in October. But I think Frankenstein is really where it hits its stride. And so I, I want to name that movie, but I'm also sort of citing the entire sort of universal cycle mm-hmm. when I do that um, because I think Frankenstein is a better film uh, overall than uh, Todd Browning's Dracula as well uh, James Well is just a uh, more um, competent director I think uh, for that particular film and well, it uh, also keys up the uh, the horror sequel because Bride of Frankenstein comes out what like less than 12 months later uh, it's more than that it's a couple years I think I thought it was pretty quick I was want to say it's like 34 almost but I have to look it up I don't know in either case though it does kind of pretty soon and then it does you know lays the groundwork of horror sequels American horror films were franchise films at the very beginning yeah and so this is not a new thing and what really begins the horror genre is a technological advance and that is the advent uh, the advent of sound film and so by 1931 sound film had been sort of infiltrated most of the markets in the United States, and uh, that is where we don't really have American horror films before that. We've got some of your haunted mansions, and uh, you know you're, you've got you know the Bat and some of these other sort of you know big scary house kind of movies, but they're not really all that ghosty. They're not really all that again what we would recognize, I think, as a horror genre kind of film until thirty one. And so the entire year kind of functions in some senses as this watershed moment. Uh, again, with, with Frankenstein sort of being the apotheosis of this initial beginning, and then of course there's a there's a whole pantheon of yeah. universal monsters that come after that. But for me, Frankenstein being that moment where we've got something like Dracula successful, Frankenstein successful, and then all of a sudden we know that we're going to do something with this. The uh, heads at Universal realize, and uh, Carl Lemley and others. Uh, who were working there at the time. And so for me, that's that begins what we now know as the American horror film. Well, I think what's really interesting, though, is if you go back to the source material on both of those, both Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I think uh, occupy a similar space, literarily speaking, 
yeah, uh, in I terms so. of setting their genre. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Frankenstein being perhaps the first science fiction novel yeah. as well, which is interesting to be thinking about. And uh, kind of being the uh, the uh, Rosetta Stone for a you know, gothic horror. Right. And the beginning of that epistolary format of novel writing. Yeah. So, it, again, it's sort of in their sort of engagement with technology and Dracula, the fact that they're using the stenographs and those kind of things and the way the voice keeps coming back unbodied, disembodied, uh, is another interesting thing to think about in the source material because that's exactly what's happening. Happening on the screen is these disembodied voices are now speaking to us. Yeah, baby. And so uh, historically, there's a lot going on, and it's a beautiful movie. It's just great. Bride of Frankenstein is better. I will absolutely give you that. It is. But um, James Whale's original Frankenstein is a masterpiece, and definitely uh, a moment in the horror genre um, that again begins what is now known as the American horror film. Yeah, we were uh, lucky enough early in our uh, friendship and a uh, podcast co-hostship to get to go see it. On, yes. uh, on film at the art museum. And it's super good. Man, it's a good-looking movie. Yeah, I love it. So there you go, dear listener. That is number next. Let's talk about number last. What do you say, Arthur Gordon? Well, I'm going to stay in the 60s. And this movie, I think, really kind of helped, um, I guess, the watershed for action cinema. I, 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 you know, I would say the gangster movie, but I don't think that's really the case. I think it is action uh, cinema moving forward. Uh, and, and that is Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. I knew it. Yeah, um, good pick. You know, uh, this this is really the movie that kind of introduced the American audience to ultraviolence, which really changes the game. You know, leading into the new Hollywood and and everything. You know that that period, sixty late sixties in America was just a kind yeah. of huge. You know, the political stuff, Vietnam. Um, no Bonnie and Clyde, no RoboCop. Yeah, uh, and so you're looking at kind of a a really interesting era, and I'm really happy uh, with some of the movies we're going to do later this month. I'm really excited to talk about them. Um, but it's, it's really, you know, Bonnie and Clyde that kind of kicks that off and, and, and introduces, you know, that use of the montage editing with that shootout at the end. Uh, it's jarring and it's abrasive. Squibs. Yeah. Uh, and it's very effective, uh, and impactful and, and it really changed the game. You know, Peck and Paul would start to play with that stuff as well later that year, uh, and moving forward in his career. And then, you know, we influence Clint Eastwood with the Dirty Harry series and Tarantino. And I mean, really we've got just kind of this you know, Verhoeven, like you mentioned, it, it's really uh, planted seeds for uh, for a lot of directors Absolutely. coming uh, in the wave of of uh, that movie, and so it, it definitely uh, was a game changer as far as violence in cinema and action cinema. I, I think uh, directly. I think yeah, there's a lot of poo pooing of uh, graphic violence on screen, but I, I I'm right there with you, Arthur. I think it is super important to the conversation we have about violence on screen is having that. The hypergraphic violence Could entering more. the conversation. Absolutely. Well, what is your number last pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? I am going to go ahead and stay in the 70s, and I am going to say Monty Python's The Holy Grail. All right. I think it is a game changer for a lot of reasons. Uh, it makes sketch comedy bankable as a form of feature-length filmmaking. Now, they had already released uh, a couple, oh, gosh, Flying Circuses before that, I think. Yeah, uh, Meaning of Life. Is, Meaning of Life before that. Is Life of Brian before or after? Ooh, try around the same time. I have to. I don't know off the off the top. Of it's my head. a little more narrative. It's not as yeah. sketchy as. Yeah, but I, I think Holy Grail really threads that needle of both being narrative, being a narrative, but also having a lot of sketch elements, uh, and improving the bankability of just kind of weird Gonzo comedy. Uh, I don't know how well it did when it came out, but again, it has had such longevity and holds such a place culturally. Uh, I should have done more research. Uh, that's that's my role on this show is not doing all the research I should have done. 
Uh, I should have checked how much, you know, how it did financially when it came out. But I think it paves the way for all kinds of stuff, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, something like the the Farley Brothers career or whether it's Jordan Peele uh, crossing over from sketch comedy on television to being uh, this horror auteur that he's becoming with uh, this coming uh, us coming out just in a few months. And then uh, obviously Get Out, which was the film of 2017. Um it really does not only do a lot for the kinds of comedy we're making, because it's so weird and silly, and it, it is both surreal and dumb in really incredible ways, but again also shows that uh, there is a place for TV writers in Hollywood. Uh, so I think it does a lot not just for the genre of comedy, but also the careers of comedians. Um, so a big, big game changer. Monty Python's Holy Grail. All right, well, very, very... And the Holy Grail, I suppose. And the Holy Grail, yes. Uh, my number last pick is a beginner of... Oh, is it a genre? Is it a cycle? Is it a style? Yeah, it's film noir. And I'm not going to say John Huston's The Maltese Falcon. I'm going to actually name 1940's uh, Stranger on the Third Floor starring Peter Lorre. Oh, I don't know anything about this film. It is... Uh, it's, it's, oh, oh, there's a guy who witnesses a, uh, a murder. Is it Peter Lorre? Uh, Pe- that was a terrible Peter Lorre. I'm so sorry. Rick, help me, there Rick. We go. You have to get there with Rick. Yeah, that's how you yeah. get there. That's yeah. the capstone for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, Peter... Is he L- the one that sees the crime, though? No, uh, it's um, somebody else. Peter Peter Lorre does the crime. Yeah, Peter Lorre of course is the he daddy. Uh, because he's German. And uh, it's 1940. And uh, he's got those wild eyes, man. He does indeed. And uh, But it's got all the sort of uh, color palette. It's got the investigation. It's got the sort of cynicism. But it's also before the war has ended. And so it really is a – if you start looking at the history of film, and, and you might find other examples. And this idea of first and that kind of stuff can get a little exhausting. But um, I think Stranger on the Third Floor really might be the first film noir. Again, that's a label that's given after the fact. You know, The French discover these movies after the war is over, and uh, they're writing the reviews and they start calling them this. And so no one set out in the 1940s to make a film noir. It was a thing that they identified sort of after the fact. But um, Stranger on the Third Floor really fits that, and it's got this crazy, amazing Art Deco dream sequence um, that's running through it as well. But oh, yeah. It's got all the shadows and the lampshades and all that stuff that you're, you know a film noir for. And it is little known, little sung. And, I mean, I love The Maltings Falcon. I love Humphrey Bogart. I love what John Huston is doing with it. The dialogue in that movie is so good. But I think in terms of the weird and the artistic sort of uh, um, ambition that you can find in film noir, it begins really, really early in the cycle. And uh, Stranger on the Third Floor is a great place to go. If you're a lover of the film noir, that's a watershed that uh, we don't talk about nearly enough. And so I recommend it very, very highly um, for that particular genre slash cycle slash style debates can ensue later. Uh, so there you go, dear listener. That's our thoughts. We'd love to hear yours via those magical means of social media. But now let's get down to business. Yes, Right, dear listener, and that business is, as always, that sweet, sweet analysis. And uh, we're about to give you all the analysis you can stand about the film Stagecoach. Uh, so Stagecoach is a Western, and we are doing this whole month of Western stuff. We played a game regarding genre, and so this is the question. What's a genre, and what's a Western? Well, this is kind of similar to the question that Arthur posed, and maybe we'll continue to ask this throughout these two marathons, but back when we did our coming-of-age uh, marathon this past summer, uh, Arthur uh, asked the question, 
what is a coming of age movie? So this is kind of a, an interesting place to start our conversation mm-hmm. about westerns. I, I think genre is much harder to define than western. Um, so I'll, I'm going to tackle western. I'll let one of you smart guys take genre. Uh, a genre is a way of categorizing media. That, correct. Well, you nailed it. Damn. <laughs> Based usually with on uh, generic uh, tropes or stylistic. Uh, flourishes it, it's or, two part right it, yeah. it, it's an aesthetic and it is a narrative structure yeah. so they're like narrative requirements so if it's a western it's got to be set in a particular kind of location it's got to be following certain kinds of stories if you're talking about san francisco in the 1870s but you're living in chinatown and you're talking about this sort of immigrant story and uh you know questions about what it means to be a fish out of water that's not really a western but if you do the same movie in the same city and it's about prospectors and they're fighting each other for the gold you've found your way into a western right well this this is actually a really good time to bring up. Uh, oh, let me get his name real quick. It is Frank Gruber. Uh, he was an author and screenwriter who wrote a shit ton of westerns and basically cemented this idea that there are only seven types of westerns, right? Let's hear uh, him. Uh, okay, let's get it. Give me one moment. Okay, so it's not really like a name, it's kind of just a general description. But the common plots there's either a construction of a railroad or a telegraph line on the wild frontier. Right. There are ranchers protecting their ranch from rustlers or large landowners. Um, revenge stories, uh, which hinge on chases and pursuits by someone wronged. Stories about the cavalry fighting Native Americans. Outlaw gang stories. And stories about lawmen or bounty hunters taking down their quarry. So there, there's only so many plot structures within a Western. And you could even go further and say that there are only so many plot structures for an adventure story. Right. I think. Uh, and again... You can just literally Google Western genre. There is a great Wikipedia article that talks about Frank Gruber's uh, archetypical Western stories. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're only – that's a big part. You're right, is those narrative uh, – Thrusts. And then with that comes, again, the sort of American West location, that mm-hmm. histor- historicity. Of course, and then we have the neo-Western, which can sort of play with some of that kind of stuff. But in classical sense, we have that. And then we have the iconography, the aesthetic, right? So we're talking... Monument uh, Valley. Uh, Monument Valley, six-gun, uh, six-shot uh, six revolvers. Uh, Ten-gallon hats. Horses. Guitars, horses, stagecoaches, trains. Saloons. Um, no planes or automobiles, though. Yep. Sex workers. Uh, and that's that's saloons. Where, well, yeah, cards. Uh, uh, native peoples, yep. and I think that's where the western gets really interesting. Is it is a genre that, from its inception, has been about gender and race mm-hmm. more than almost any. More than it's almost about violence. It's about gender and race in a really interesting way because it's about who is a hero, who is a villain, uh, who do we look up to, and who do we damn? Right. And uh, frequently the people that we damn are women and people of color in the Western genre. And that's something that I think as the genre has gone on over the past hundred years or so, it has gotten... Because, again, the Western genre predates film. It goes back to the Penny Dreadfuls that are being produced at the time the West is being quote-unquote tamed. Back in the East, you have people reading their Penny Dreadfuls about what's going on in the West. So it is a, it is a mythical time that has been mythical literally from the start. The, right. West, the, the West was never the West. Ever. And that's an important thing to keep in mind throughout these two marathons that we're going to be doing, I think. And I think it's also very fundamentally American that uh, yeah. as, as a genre. Now, there are – are there – are there examples from Europe? Of course there are. And are there examples from South America? Of course there are. Australia. Australia. Japan. Yeah. yeah. There, there, so there are – of course there are those examples of that at work. But it's 
Inception is fundamentally the story of nation building and wrestling with what it is, or what rather who it is that we are in yeah. terms of our ancestry, in terms of our history. And so it is, in in some sense, it is already sort of self-reflexively critical as a genre, trying to reconstruct, deconstruct uh, what's going on with that. So Well, and I think a big part of that is you have millions and millions of square miles of a continent being rolled over uh, by a colonizing force. And there's just not the infrastructure in place to say what's going on. Uh, so you have these genocide, this genocide taking place, but also these lives being lived, these cities being built and being burnt in the course of a decade. There is a lot going on and a lot of lies lost with no one left to tell the story. And I think that is a big part of the mythologizing of the West is, you know, it's not in a city. I mean, well, something happens in Baltimore or Boston in, 19, or in 1880, there's somebody there to write the story. Something happens in, you know, the panhandle of Oklahoma in 1880. It just happened, and it was over. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, we're going to talk about this dumb state that we're from a lot over this course of this marathon because I think we live in a state that, in a lot of ways, is kind of the forebearer of the Western myth. I think Oklahoma and Texas especially, and maybe Kansas and Missouri to a, a lesser extent, I think all hold a very interesting place in Western myth-making and also what the history that was uh, the westward expansion of America kind of created, mm -hmm. especially because of the forced removal of uh, the na native peoples of the southeastern United States to be ro relocated to Oklahoma, you know, where there are already other native peoples. Uh, look, this is not going to be a podcast about Oklahoma history, but uh, there is a lot to know uh, about the native people of this country, uh, especially uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the... There was a lot of moving around. Uh, the uh, the Cherokee and Choctaw are from Georgia originally, for instance. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the Navajo uh, spread a vast range of both Mexico and the United States, and so on and so forth. So we're going to do our best to walk around those things, but our you know we're not historians. Our knowledge is limited. Uh, but again, I, I think this region that the three of us grew up in is kind of steeped in Western myth-making. Uh, parts of California are that way, too. I think San Francisco uh, has a huge part of uh, the West in its identity, as does North and South Dakota and uh, Wyoming. I think just the Western half of this country, each of these different geographical regions share a little bit of that story in very interesting ways, I think. Absolutely. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is what this movie is doing with regard to a very particular thing that we see in the Western in terms of its iconography, in terms of characterization, which is the archetype. Mm. Uh, I want to suggest that um, the American understanding of uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, comes fundamentally from the Western. Damn. Wow. Holy crap. Uh you just blew my mind. Keep going. Well, I mean, that's it. I mean, yeah. right? You got your gambler, you know, you, which, you your know, rogue, your rogue, or whatever. I mean, we, and we can go to sort of these medieval analogs, but then we have our, you know, the the prostitute with the heart of gold. We've got our uh, our good bad man. We've got our lawman. We've got our outlaw. We've got you know all these sort of you well, know, it's, various it's, characters. It's our version of uh, the the medieval stories that Europe has, right? Because they're they're similar times in history. They're times when uh, laws are being rewritten, societies are being refounded. 
so you're right. I mean, that's a very interesting observation, Dustin. I had never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, they're they're D and D characters, and yeah. so by by simply saying we have a gambler here, we know a lot about this character already. We've got a lawman here. We've got a you know we've got a rancher here. We have got a drunk doctor. We have got a drunk doctor. I mean, it's like well, this is okay. So this is you know our, our crazy tipsy alchemist. Okay, we know what we know what we're dealing with. And uh, so it, it does function as a shorthand. And then, of course, we've got our two villains, or three villains, that are waiting for us in Lordsburg. Yeah. And then uh, we do get a little bit of a... There's a we, we get some introduction to uh, uh, Mexico, which has... A, the U, U.S.-Mexican relations are just as integral to Western stories, I think, as uh, European colonizers and uh, Native Americans. Uh, but we don't really we don't spend a lot of time with Mexicans or in Mexico in this film. Mm-hmm. Just very briefly, do we kind of uh, cut through there? Uh, yeah. Buck, the stagecoach driver, mentions that his wife is Mexican, and then we meet. Uh, oh, I can't remember the character's name. Chris. Chris, who runs the uh, saloon that they go to, and his wife is uh, Apache. Apache. Yeah. Uh, do we want to go ahead and use this moment now that we've entered race to talk about race, or do we want to keep stay on archetypes for a little Might bit? Might as well. Um, let's talk about the Native Americans. Yeah, we, because, we can circle back to archetypes because they're orcs. Unfortunately, yeah, and I I do think it's interesting to have uh, depending on the western you're watching and depending on the time it's made, it's going to be more racist to native people or more racist to Mexican people. Right. Uh, it, it just kind of depends on the time and the filmmaker. Uh, I will say that it is period accurate of John Ford to depict interracial relationships in this film, both mm-hmm. with Buck's wife um, and both with Chris's wife. Uh, again, this comes back to uh, the Spanish colonization of Latin America uh, and South America and Central America. Uh, there has been an intermixing of Spanish culture and Native American culture for a lot longer than there has been Anglo-Saxon culture. Uh, and I think this film dips its toes in that water a little bit, especially when you talk about the history of the Apache and the Navajo. Uh, they are kind of their history is inextricably linked to contact with Spain. Uh, and the development of Mexico as a country that is, you know, as a country separate from Spain. Uh, so it is very interesting that Ford is being, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say progressive for his time. Um, yeah. I think again, for his time is an important asterisk there. But uh, he he makes reference to inter-ethnic, interracial relationships without much of comment on it. I mean, right. that is just the West. The West is not a white place. The West has always been an integrated place. Uh, and the fact that so many filmmakers focus on the whiteness of the West does a disservice because cowboys were white, they were black, they were native, they were Hispanic. I mean, the, the occupation of cowboy was an, a working man's occupation. Yeah, it's a shepherd. Yeah, it, it was the occupation of people who couldn't read, who had no real skills other than shooting guns and riding horses. Uh, it was truckers. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it is an inherently working, and anytime you talk about working class professions, they are almost always integrated in a lot of ways, more so than you would think about white collar jobs. Um, and I just think it's very interesting uh, that that narrative has been lost. It, it's kind of the way that uh, medieval Europe gets whitewashed, because medieval Europe was a, a melting pot in its own ways as mm-hmm. well. Um, but because the Western is such a archetypically a, you know, or uh, intrinsically American genre, and because America likes to tell the story about itself being a melting pot, you would think our Western stories would have gotten more progressive earlier than other genres. And they don't, because the Native peoples get treated like orcs up until, oh, now. I would say probably the mid to late 90s is about the first time we start getting Westerns set in the in Native communities. 
Yeah, the, I mean, you've got a few. I mean, but, but kind of the the keystones you look at, you know, Last of the Mohicans or right. Dances with Wolves are still white, white guys. Tales. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the 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 Native Americans just are the backdrop of this the Great White Savior, um, who's there to to help you know save the day and save the peoples. Uh, you know, Pocahontas, uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which plays with those stereotypes. So, it, it, you know, we don't really ever get that. You know, we've we talked a lot about Geronimo's being kind of one of those, um, but it's just not something you see a lot of. I, I do think something interesting that goes on in the movie is it does show the sort of gradations of racism. You know, there's a lot of writing about um, levels of blackness, you know, and, and yeah. you know, those, you know, quintillions and quadroons and, you know, mulatto and, you know, the various... Well, women. and which all comes out of uh, the... Uh, the genocide of the native peoples. It was a blood quotients were a measure of uh, native peoples' tame ability. Right. Uh, you know your your percentage of uh, native uh, uh, ethnicity was a a way of qualifying how easy it would be to integrate you into white society. Right. And and so in this particular movie though, uh, it it does sort of play out in acceptability in terms of interracial marriages. And so Buck, mm-hmm. who is a uh, a likable, lovable character is married to a Mexican woman. And that seems to, uh, you know, show that Buck is the fool and the lower class. But, you know, he's, you know, so he's white trash. But it's okay for white trash to be married to somebody of Mexican descent. And then later when we meet Chris, Chris is a Mexican. And it's not quite okay, but it's sort of expected that he might marry an Apache woman. And so you begin to see that there is, even within white racism, there is a hierarchy that's established that, again, doesn't necessarily affect uh, those white folk at the top, but it does show the sort of power structure of being able to determine this is what's acceptable, this is what's not acceptable, and this is the the levels of humanity that a person might possess based on their race. And so there's just a little bit of an image there that Chris is a little bit more of a less trustworthy, a little bit more nefarious, and a little bit um, less likable character. And of course, this person is the person who's married to somebody who's Apache. And then Buck, who is definitely less cultured and less you know wise, smart, you know he's definitely deficient in some sense as a human being. But he's still a white guy, and it, but, but a deficient white guy could be married to a Mexican lady, and that'd be okay. And so, uh, again, I just want to sort of name that sort of racial hierarchization that's going on there. And, of course, Geronimo himself, as a character, is only just a big, bad, scary in the background. Yeah. He is not a he's freedom a fighter. Yeah, he's just he is he's Sauron way off in the yeah. east, you know, who is there breeding a you know, just blood and terror uh, wherever he goes. And he has entered into that moment of fighting again. And so, therefore, he is just a character. There, There's no history. There's no understanding. There's nothing to what or who Geronimo was, who died, by the way, speaking of Oklahoma history, in Fort Sill. Yeah, he did. Here in Oklahoma, um, quote-unquote escaping. And, um, mm-hmm. 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 yeah, so that's a thing. And uh, so... This is all part of that sort of milieu of the the racism of this particular moment. I do want to move a little bit into well, – we're going to get into masculinity, but before we get into that, I want to talk about the construction of this hero because we begin to see in the Western the idea of the good bad man. Yeah. And uh, John Wayne's character is definitely that. He is a convict. He killed a guy. He – you know, go ahead. Well, it <sighs> – I don't know that John Ford meant to say this. I don't know that the film Stagecoach means to say this. 
But my take on the good bad man in the West is that the only good guys in the West are people who don't obey the law because the law of the West is genocide mm. and colonization. And the only good white people to be found in the West are outlaws who actively set themselves apart from the society that is rolling in to colonize. Um, look, well, I, that's what I got to say about it's, it. It's utterly unintentional, but I think there, there is that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I doubt the intentions there, but I, I, I think there's also, from a narrative standpoint, I, I think it's just a more interesting character. That's fair. I mean, mm-hmm. and when you have a straight-laced baby face who, you know, upholds all the laws and it's just, you know, the knight in shining armor, it's kind of boring. You get, well, you yeah. get Mr. Peacock. Yeah. yeah. Well, you and, get High Noon. Yeah. You get a white hat movie. You know, and, and so when you you throw in somebody who's got that kind of edge to them, that grit to them, who you know, there's a new dynamic in play now. You know, he's he doesn't answer to anyone. I mean, he respects the marshal, um, but he's willing to jump at any chance to to, to go. Um, but he also, you know, he's going to stand up for you know the whoever he's going to stand up for Dallas, and you know, he's gonna make sure everyone's got even kill uh, yeah. under his watch. And so, I, I think there's a dynamic there. Uh, that really helps add new dimensions to these archetypes and to these characters um, that allow Ford and, you know, your screenwriters to start to play around in the sandbox a little more. And, of course, not every uh, the, not every bad man in, a, in the Western is a good bad man. Uh, right. This is a film with a gray hat. A lot of films have just white hats and black hats. And those stories uh, usually involve mostly white characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is a native character, they're, you know, they're, they are the only native character because it's not a story about native uh peoples right uh, or the fighting thereof so uh but again that that's just been my observation especially i'm gonna have to name check it again uh playing a lot of red dead redemption too it's a story about uh resisting industrialization in a lot of ways uh it's got its problems we don't we're not here to talk about that but i i just feel like there as we interrogate the good bad man in westerns throughout the next couple of months it's something i'm going to be looking for yeah. is where does the good bad man align himself? And the good bad man is usually uh, a frequent character trait for the good bad man is he spent a lot of time with native peoples and he speaks the language. Yeah. So it's going to be a, something that I'm going to be uh, keeping a close eye out for. I th- I, go ahead. Well, I, was just, I think it's also an interesting move away from the singing cowboy. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've, we've got, you know, Roy Rogers, Dean Autry, and, you know, they've kind of got their, their gimmick and their shtick. Uh, and, and this, I think, you know, setting up, Wayne in this way as this anti-hero um, helps to do what Stagecoach did and, and elevate uh, the genre from the B movie. You know, yeah. uh, you know, traditionally the the western was the B movie. It was the the first reel. You went and saw it and had a good time. It's for the kids, the good guys won. You know, there's a good shoot 'em up. The white hats walked away happy and free. And then you know we got to the main event, the big feature film. Yeah. And what this did, I think, was help to. You know, adding in those new dynamics helped to elevate, you know, as it did the, the genre itself. And and it sets the stage for the revisionist Western in the 70s, right? Because, I mean, uh, th- those are all films about antiheroes. Uh, so I think uh, the Ringo Kid is kind of an interesting character in that regard, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what it begins is the cycle of the necessity of the good bad man. Is that you need someone with the appropriate values and the appropriate ideology and the appropriate sort of, again, American spirit. And then that person who's willing to violate whatever rules are there in order to, again, sort of live up and according to those values. Especially if it's a society that uh, has values that are inherently bankrupt. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I think it's even more than that, though, because there is this idea that, that we, we need some – we occasionally need people who are willing to do 
um, extraordinarily awful, heinous thing. We need these people yeah. who are efficient in the distribution of violence. You want me on that horse. Yeah. You need me on that horse. Yeah, yeah. I, I, because we need someone who can do extraordinary renditions, and yeah. we can black bag people, and and you know, sort of the contemporary mode of that. But it begins here in the Western, is that Johnny Ringo, without him there, they die. Yeah. Right, you cannot get through Apache country unless you've got this, you know, again, person with all the right values, but who's also kind of a bad guy. And so you need to have these groups of bad guys gathered up yeah. for such a time. And as this, this is obviously a different good bad man story because Ringo is uh, <laughs> actively a participant in uh, killing as many Apaches as he possibly can. Sure. Uh, so the, my theory of the, the good bad man does not hold water for stagecoach whatsoever. Uh, but I, I think it, it is interesting that uh, the good bad man is always in opposition to the forces of quote unquote civilization. Mm -hmm. I think it also allows him to become more of an everyman. Yeah. You know, now we've got a flawed hero. You know, we can relate to that a little right. better. Uh, you know, especially here, right at the start of World War II, right? Well, I mean, the the tail end of the the absolute worst of the depression. Yeah, and so I think uh, kind of that darker edge is starting to show and. Um, I, I think it allows him to level the playing field, right? You know, we've got a character. You know, if if uh, you know uh, the the the, the marshal, no, the card player. You know, what's his name? Oh, uh, Hatfield. Hatfield. You know, you know, he's kind of this upper class. He's got the silver cup, right? And, and that he won gambling. Yeah, and then Ringo Kid can kind of scoff at that. He's the everyman. He's you know mm -hmm. he's not at that level. He doesn't have to be in this. There's nothing to that. He knows there's nothing. Yeah, you've got a silver cup, big whoop. You know, the water's what matters. It's very interesting. Um, the Western is the only genre I can think of where uh, the Southern person uh, is played as as the, the genteel. Mm -hmm. um, so often in American cinema, the people from... The, the, the Southern character represents the working class, represents uh, stupidity, represents, you know, so many... Backwardness. Backwardness. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's... Almost always uh, in the Western or, in, you know, usually in modern retellings of the Western, do we get the Virginian, right? Mm -hmm. Do we get the genteel Southern folk uh, who, you know, really made their bones trying to copy the the class system of uh, of England? Um, and it's just interesting. We don't get it in a lot of places except in the Western. Yeah. Uh, and then again, you've got plenty of hillbillies and rednecks in, in Westerns, too. Don't get me wrong. But uh, they tend not to be Southern, though. The Southern yeah. do tend to be aristocrats. Yeah. yeah. And it's just interesting because they, they usually represent the, the railroad. Uh, it's either, you know, anybody from back east, regardless of from whether or not they're from the north or south, is is the moneyed class. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just interesting because it's, it's not a archetype that we get in a lot of places in American stories except the Western, I think. Um, or again in uh, you know pseudo westerns or neo westerns, right? Um, so this brings us now to this idea of gender that I want to get really bared down on, and of course we're going to talk about the depiction of what a woman is. But I want to begin with because John Wayne being such a icon for masculinity. Again, my uncle had a frame picture of him uh, in his house that moved to every house he lived in. I mean, it's just really really common, and uh, loved that kind of stuff. And you know, wanted a thirty thirty Winchester because John. Wayne, right? Well, I mean, it's a hell of a what guy. was it? Was it the pink shirt with the the tan? Vest? It was that one. Yeah, yeah. it was that that particular yeah. one scarf with the blue, yeah, yeah the little yeah, blue handkerchief, handkerchief around yep. his neck. Yeah, man, he loved it. There's an iconic American image for you. There's the that is the American Saint Mary right there. Right? Yeah, it is. So Mother, you put that up right Father next John. to White Jesus and John F. Kennedy. 
So Father John. What does Johnny Ringo teach us in this Ringo film? Kid. You're getting Ringo Kid. Oh, Johnny Ringo. Oh, yeah, Ringo Kid. Johnny yeah, Ringo. It's, it's not Michael Bean, baby. Yeah, Look no. God, like an what, what, man. what does the Ringo Kid teach us um, that it means to be a man in yeah. America in 1939? Well, I think uh, the Ringo Kid is a, a much different man than what uh, John Wayne would become. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Duke would yeah. become. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Ringo Kid is a different character than the Duke. Because the Duke is all about. Uh, yeah, I'm here to tell you what to do, Pilgrim. The Ringo Kid is about respecting all people mm-hmm. without preconceived yep. assumptions about their moral character. Uh, it is so interesting to watch Ringo be the only character, even the Marshal who is, uh, well, I would say other than the Marshal and the Doctor, who are pretty nice to everybody. The Doctor mostly because he wants to drink with everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, R- Ringo is one of the only characters that is empathetic to Dallas. And yeah. I feel like... It never states that he kn- she doesn't seem to think he knows that she's a sex worker. My read on the film is that he knows the he entire knows, time. He oh care. yeah, he doesn't give yeah. shit because he's an outlaw. Mm-hmm. And I mean, who they're on level judge? playing. I mean, exactly. The, I mean, he's he's on the same level as the drunk doctor, the outcast doctor, and yeah. the sex worker. Yeah, and he, he occupies that same social class, and that leveling of the social playing field uh, allows him to kind of choose to be a different kind of person to be a different kind of man a man that says i don't care what your background is i'm going to respect you until you give me a reason not to respect you he's also a man with a certain reputation which allows him to speak down to the rich greedy banker or the you know the victorian southern genteel yeah uh, you know and, and he's able to kind of speak down to those uh, you know if you you're working class, and you go see this movie, and he's he's talking down to the boss. He's talking down yeah. to the upper class. He's he's putting them in their place. He's kind of standing in there for those those people who can't say that. But it's interesting because the way in which his kindness to Dallas plays out mm-hmm. is uh, again staking claim to her sexually property. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That's a good point. You know, it's like oh, I will take you to wife. Yeah, I mean that. So this is this is how I'll be nice to you. I will let you be mine, and you can live on my ranch. It's a very good point. You you're know? right. And so it, it, it's established as, again, just, no, I don't see you as damaged property. I see you as valuable property. And, and I think that is because it's 1939, and uh, nobody's thinking about telling a story where a man and a woman just become good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there, There is only one end for a man and a woman put together on screen in 1939, and is that, that is a marriage bed. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, that does it makes it less interesting. Honestly, I think the more interesting movie is the movie where they just kind of look out for each other and uh, you know are buds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the, that classical style. You know, we haven't talked about it in a long time, but that classical style of of this era of Hollywood really, you know, that dual narrative, the commandment of you know you've got the A story and the B story is the romance, and and you have to have that that love figure there that that figure that that relationship to fall back on uh you know for whatever reason but you know the the driving force behind hollywood through now yeah right. well, <laughs> yeah what, what, what are the rest of uh ringo kid's virtues though so beyond his interactions with dallas it, it, i think it's the efficient distribution of violence as one of them and i think it is his vengefulness it is that he does not he settles scores yeah that this is this is a virtue of this person who says somebody did something bad to my family and i'm going you know whether or not it continues this unending cycle of violence for my part i'm not going to continue until these people stop breathing and again that is the more interesting movie is the movie where him and dallas ride off into the sunset and he foregoes vengeance but Mm -hmm. that's not the kind of movie stagecoach is interestingly it's sunrise they ride off into 
Good point. Which is a not just just you know we we say that right off in the sunset. Yeah. This this moment in the western, it's a sunrise. Yeah. I, I know we're. I still want to stay where we're at talking about the masculinity of the Ringo Kid, but it just talking about his relationship with Dallas made me think about Hatfield mm-hmm. and. Um, Ooh, I Lucy. Lucy, thank Lucy. you. And he uh, wants to possess her? Yeah, he does. Yeah, it's the, a weird relationship. The difference is uh, he's an evil uh, southern aristocrat, and she's a married woman. Mm-hmm. And the, the woman that he wants to possess is already married. Uh, and uh, he, he, it's so interesting to see Hatfield trying, actively trying to bang this woman who wants nothing more than to see her husband alive. Yeah. Uh, and he, he sees himself as above the sex worker. Yet he is actively in pursuit of uh, of an affair. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting character, and again, Carradine plays him great. I mean, yeah. he is an absolute villain. And as we alluded to earlier, what does he do? What is his ideal way of protecting this woman when he thinks they will fall captive to the Apaches? He's going to murder her. Yep. I got one bullet left, and it's for you because I can't possess you. I'm certainly not going to let these Apaches do it. Yeah. Uh, and then he catches a bullet for his trouble, which I think is a great ending for that character. And again, yes. it's John Ford is progressive in his ways and his his films again i've only seen this in the searchers but both of these films are very complicated mm-hmm. and their depictions of both gender roles and race um and uh, again the, you can never tell and that's kind of the thing i like about it you can never tell when the film is intentionally progressive and when it's just kind of accidentally um because it is always so muddied because where there is kindness to the sex worker it is kindness bred out of i'm going to take you away from this life and uh, make an honest woman of you mm-hmm. yeah it's a uh, it's complicated that's for sure uh, but you're right. I mean, the Ringo Kid is a forthright, upstanding guy, and yet uh, represents masculinity and all of its uh, uh, nice guy violence uh, that uh, we know it for. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he keeps his promises and those kind of things. So there yeah. are some of those kind of virtues. Well, you know? except his promises usually involve uh, the end of a rifle. Right. Uh, so, again, let's talk about Dallas now. Let's just okay. talk, let's talk about what it means to be a woman in the West. What What is the good woman? And I think Dallas is a good woman. Yeah. So you can have a past, it seems, that they, they excuse that, right, uh, in terms of it. Because the film is on Dallas's side, to be sure. For sure. And it does take a pretty strong... Anti, it does take a sort of anti, um, you know, puritanical, anti-puritanical Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, Scarlet Letter, um, Hester Prim, uh, kind of approach. It is definitely part of that tradition, saying, you know, you without sin cast the first stone, kind of thing. But how does she redeem herself? It is caring for this moneyed woman's baby. Yeah, the matriarchy. I mean, she becomes that maternal figure, and that's you know when the Ringo kid decides to propose, and that's you know she's kind of fully redeemed herself in the eyes of these men, you know. Because she's good stock for breeding. You're either yeah. Mary Magdalene or Mary Mother of Christ. You can't be both. Yeah, that, that mother, that yeah, virgin whore thing. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what I was alluding to, yeah. yeah. And I, I think Dallas is actively being played into that, that dynamic. And again, I think the more interesting version of Stagecoach is the, the version that lets her uh, either choose to stay a sex worker or you know, complicates her relationships with men or... You know, again, I'm, I'm. Look, I'm not going to write the stagecoach remake. There's already been a couple, but mm-hmm. I, I think the more interesting story is the one that lets her have uh, more in her life, lets her have a much more complicated life than. Oh, I've seen. I have seen that you can care for a child. I will take you to my ranch in Mexico, where we will run from the law. Mm-hmm. It's a. Uh, it's not an interesting place that Dallas gets to go, but uh, it is an interesting character, to be sure, and a hell of a performance. Yeah, she's very good. She's absolutely fantastic. She ended up winning an Oscar a couple years later, mm-hmm. uh, the actress whose name escapes me at the moment. Claire something. Yeah, but uh, she got top billing, actually, uh, because yep. she was much more well-known than... Claire Trevor. Claire Trevor, yeah. she uh, She's like second or 
third build? She like maybe first, actually. Close. I think she had the highest salary. She's top three. Yeah, but Car- yeah. Carradine's got to be first, right? Or mm, maybe the no. maybe our uh, sheriff if... would be first, right? What's I would his assume name? any poster at this point has Wayne at the top. Yeah. Any, well, yeah, any no. Poster. Contemporary posters would. But uh, uh, Claire Trevor's top bill. There you go. Wow. Yeah. She was one of the most well-known stars the Biggest time. name on the poster. And mm. again, it would be a couple years later she'd take home uh, an Oscar. Carradine is fourth build. There really? That far down? Divine oh. is third and Wayne is second. I'm okay. surprised at that. Gotcha. Okay, so Wayne does get second I mean, he's, oh, I he's, bet he's, Ford he's, he's clearly the, Well, he's clearly the star of the film, too. For sure. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to do that regardless of whether or not they yeah. have that much cell power as, as a name. But me, Claire Trevor is absolutely phenomenal yeah, as Dallas. Great. She's yeah. really... Great, and I think we've talked so much about Dallas this episode because of her performance. Because mm-hmm. you're right, there's not a lot there on the page. It is a pretty standard, uh, you know, uh, the whore becomes a virgin again story. But mm-hmm. uh, it it is a character that is given line. And again, I really don't like throwing that word around, but you know, that's the it, language. It is of, the language of the moment of the dichot. Well, of the, just the dichotomy of those those tropes mm-hmm. uh, of of women in film. But I, I I really think that Claire Trevor's performance is what makes Dallas such a a well rounded character, right. and why I've spent so much time talking about her. Well, and I think it does uh, illustrate, and I've already you know uh, you know invoked the name of Hawthorne here. I, I do think it is part of the American tradition, which is to interrogate our puritanical roots. Yeah, it is, and and so what we find throughout um, Ford's oeuvre is this sort of again repeat of American revivalist hymnody that continues to play throughout. And and that this movie is, uh, you know, there's, there's this group of women who do not want Dallas to live there. Or the doctor, for that matter. Or the doctor, right, because he's a drunk. Yeah, and they so, drive the drunk and the sex worker out of town. And so they, there, there, there is a way in which this movie is continuing in the American fashion of questioning those forms of judgment. And I think, you know, always it's been a thing that's been part of American, you know, but not not just sort of culture in general, but, you know, sort of Christian conversation, right, within, you know, the Christendom uh, side of it is like, what do we do with those who are not like ourselves? And it does flash forward now to the moment that we exist in now, in which our society has become more and more atomized and isolated and insulated, where we only have people around us who are part of the ladies' temperance union, union, you know, who are those who are kicking out Dallas and Josiah Boone, I think is the doctor's name. Um, or we have a society's only composed of Josiah Boones and Dallases. And, and Ringo Kids. And Ringo Kids. And I find that to be troubling. And I, I simply just want to say that this movie, as an experiment of these people to get gather together here, and they're, they're being forced to talk to each other, sort of anticipates what the later 20th and then early 21st century in which we now live has sort of realized. It's a very good point, yeah. I mean, it is a story about forcing very disparate people together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that does sound like the nightmare scenario. I mean, as we just finished the holiday season right now. And yeah, we did. I'm looking at social media, and I cannot tell you how much anxiety and angst I kept seeing about having to go home because I'm related to these people. I don't get to pick these folks. They're 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 my family, and they 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 pray different. They vote different. You know, they listen to different music or whatever. And now I'm gonna have to put up with and you know uh, you know listen to them say what they think. All right, and, uh, and again, I, I realize there's some things that I think are stupid, and ridiculous, and I don't understand why anyone else thinks them either. But that being said, it, it there is this weird expectation that you would never be stuck on a stagecoach with people who thought different than you. You will always be stuck on a stagecoach with people who think different from you. Make no mistake, friend. Yeah. You will always be with other people you don't want to be with. 
Right. I also, this is just a random thing I thought, and we'll wrap this up. I, I thought this movie very much is um, Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves' speed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Not wrong. And uh, anyway, that, that, that's that, uh, maybe a, a conversation. I haven't seen it. I, I'm aware of it. Yeah, I, I know the crux of the, the plot. It, well, yeah, the, the bus can't go below 80, 80 yeah. miles an hour. Dennis it? Hopper's a madman, etc. Yeah, but anyway, I just th- speed is weird uh, to think about with this movie. So let's come to the point of the show, though. I think we speed changes a lot of things from what I gather. <sighs> let's um, render a verdict on stagecoach. What do we say? Shelfer trash, Elser instead. I go to you first, Arthur. Shelf. I'm gonna shelf it. I I, 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 for a lot of reasons, influential, uh, required reading. You know, whatever you don't call it. Um, so it's on the shelf, and with it, I, I really like what it. And I, I like these kind of group things where you put a group in a in, in a situation and let a small society build from it. And so I, I would pair with this, uh, the mist. Um, I would do yeah. uh, assault on precinct thirteen. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, Carpenter was definitely inspired by the westerns of this era, and so it, it definitely has that feel to it. Uh, and then also uh, one that might come up again later, and that is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, which Have you is, watched already? Yeah, I, I watched it a while back. Oh, fantastic! Okay, um, but it's definitely you know playing with the tropes of the genre and satirizing them and subverting them, and, and definitely having some fun with them. And you know there are a lot of nods here that we'll see in Buster Scruggs, and, and so I, I think that's uh, a fun pair with this film. So definitely a shelfer for me. All righty, very good, Arthur. What do you say, Dalton? Shelfer trash, Elsner instead. Yeah, I gotta say shelf. I mean, it's it's a damn good movie. Uh, we've sat here for over an hour now, complicating it and problematizing it. Uh, but, uh, look, that's the thing. Uh, old movies are racist and sexist, but sometimes they're also really damn good. And uh, a thing can be uh, ideologically troubling and also really great. And uh, I know we say that on this show all the time, but it, it's wor- it, it bears repeating. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think, as Arthur said, uh, just in terms of doing your homework, I think it's totally shelfable. What would you pair with it? Uh, Mad Max Fury Road for some more buck-wild-ass stunts and crazy camera work. Uh, the Seven Samurai uh, by Akira Kurosawa, just in terms of very efficiently uh, and judiciously uh, setting up likable characters that you want to see their journeys, and especially just the economy of character building. Uh, again, Seven Samurai gives itself a lot more screen time, but uh, I think both films are do a really good job of introducing a big cast uh, quickly and efficiently. Uh, and finally, I forgot my last one. There we go. I had to pull up. Uh, I'm going to say Bone Tomahawk, uh, the Craig Zoller. Uh, crap. I forget that director's name, but uh, he's done a couple of movies now. I've only seen Bone Tomahawk. Uh, but Bone Tomahawk is a Western uh, in so much as that it is about a bunch of people riding horses until violence happens. The only difference is the violence in this is uh, cave people uh, who are cannibals in Bone Tomahawk. So a very different movie than Stagecoach. But again... Operating in that format of just letting you get to know some people before buck wild stuff happens. So those are my recommendations to pair with it. Dustin, what, what do you think? Uh, Stagecoach, is it on the shelf or not? Well, I've decided that this year one of my resolutions is I'm going to be um, a bit more vicious. Um, a bit more. I give it a week. Uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we pick on him for not liking anything but he is a pretty frequent shelfer. I, yeah, I mean, almost always. And I'm going to say Stagecoach is good. Mm-hmm. It's good, but I don't think you ought to put it on your shelf. 
I, I mean, it, it, feet it, to fire. Yeah, I would say the Searchers is better. Yeah, Searchers is a better John Ford, John Wayne movie, or the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a better John Ford, John Wayne movie. Either one of those would be uh, a good instead uh, for this movie. I think it's I, again, I think it's very good. I think interesting in terms of early Ford. I think it's worthy of conversation. I think it's something people can definitely talk about. But I don't think it's a movie you must have seen to be conversant in either the Western or in film studies. And uh, so I'm 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 going to go ahead and say no. Not, okay. th- not not this one, um, and instead maybe see The Searchers um, uh, for no other reason. I think it is a much better film. And then I think also in, in terms of instead and then this sort of a... It's forward reckoning with the racism of the Western, too. Yeah. In, a, in an extremely direct way. Right, yeah. Because John Wayne's character in that movie is actively a bad person. Yes, and I and I think that that makes it more interesting as well. I agree. So, um, yeah, I'm going to trash it. I'm going to do The Searchers instead. I'm also going to do Lifeboat by Hitchcock uh, by just throwing people together and making them have conversations and the moral dilemmas that go along with it and then I'm also going to add um, up you to the horror genre and George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead from 1968 in which it is a movie that wrestles with the Vietnam War and race and all those kind of things in interesting ways and is in many ways a similar kind of movie rather than a trip in which you're fraught with difficulty it's a siege film fraught with those kinds of difficulties all action movies are just westerns yeah and and zombies are action horror movies okay yeah, okay. I, I'm just talking out of my ass, let's be honest, which yeah. I usually am. Uh, so uh, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on uh, the, I was going to say The Searchers, but it's not, Stagecoach, uh, starring one John Wayne, directed by one John Ford. So this is a marathon, so that means there's another one, right? Yep. Yeah, and I know you're pretty enthused about this one because you pushed for its inclusion. I did. Uh, so I, I know you're going to be around at least for one more. So why don't you this. tell us what we're doing next so, week? So one of the things that we realize is that the Western in the United States, um, it is a long-lived genre. It is probably the longest generic cycle, sustained cycle in American media. And so, I mean, it, it is huge in terms of that. And so as such, it begins to look for inspirations all over the place. And one of those places where inspiration was found in some of the revival cycles of the Italian spaghetti western was Japan. And so we are going to be looking at an Akira Kurosawa film that is an eastern, very much a cowboy western that Akira Kurosawa sits in sets in feudal Japan. We're going to look at Yojimbo, the inspiration for the man with no name in A Fistful of Dollars. So I am very excited uh, to watch, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be great. Tashiro Mifune, Akira Kurosawa, Western. Mifune's such a... Uh, welcome to 2019, dear listener. Uh, it's going to be a fun one. We're going to have a good time. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, head on over to www.goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music is made by friend of the show Aaron Rogers, and our outro music this week is Shall We Gather at the River, performed by Randy Travis. Shall we gather at the river Where bright angels' feet have trod with its crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God. Yes, we'll gather at that river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at that river. 
the throne of God Saints at that 